0: listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance.
1: Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Well, hey, friends, welcome to the episode. And I know for my longer term listeners, uh, you're aware that uh, I started this podcast by just opening a spreadsheet one day and listing about 80 names of people that I find inherently interesting. Maybe I thought that they would have some kind of contribution to this topic of chronic anxiety and leadership. And um, the joy for me has been that the overwhelming majority of those people have willingly agreed to come on the show. And not only that, not only did they come on, which I didn't know if they would, but just the quality of what they're offering when they come on the show. Today's guest is exactly that, we're, we're featuring Bishop Todd Hunter today. Uh, I don't remember where I first heard about Todd, I just know that as I got to know him and his work, I knew that he was somebody I wanted to learn from. Um, he, he's written a number of books, uh, probably most famously, I think his fun book is The Accidental Anglican. Uh, Todd used to be in the Vineyard Movement, in fact, as we get into in the episode, he replaced John Wimber as the leader of the Vineyard Movement. But he then moved into anglicanism and even though he's technically retired today he is a bishop in the uh, united states anglican church but todd also led alpha usa and i'm sure you know alpha as one of the best ways of helping unchurch people get their mind around jesus christ and even have an encounter with christ todd ran that whole operation uh in the united states as well he's planted a church he has a wealth of experience but he also has some really interesting friends. Uh, one of the things I enjoyed doing with Todd is getting into his relationship with Dallas Willard and what he learned from Dallas. Somewhere along the way, I, I learned that Todd had been intrigued by systems theory, specifically Ed Friedman's book, Failure of Nerve. And so as we like to do on this show, we get into the topic of differentiation and emotional health. And of course, Todd was also gracious to uh, suffer through my gauntlet of anxiety questions. Let's take a listen now. I thought it would be fun to, to talk about uh, leadership succession, Todd. Like I'm always fascinated when somebody replaces a founder of a movement and you came in right after John Wimber to lead the vineyard. Right. What was that like for you?
0: Well, that question gives me a flashback. I was, it was in the early nineties and I was finishing graduate school and I had an elective I could take if I remember right. And so I took some sort of course on leadership and discovered the idea that when you're coming in after a founder or just maybe a super important CEO in the life of a company or something, um, that you should never question big decisions that were made before you. And I remember thinking, hmm. And whoever this author or professor went on to say that most decisions made by intelligent, godly people make sense at the time. And it's not fair to judge them five or 10 or 15 years down the track based on a new set of circumstances, a new context, new data, and then to question that. And I think a lot of leaders do that because it's a way of marking yourself out. It's a way of kind of showing, I'm overstating this to make the point, but like showing that you're a big shot or you're smart or you're powerful or something. So that was one of the truisms that I've carried around now for 20 or so years is it I think kindness, respect, humility just kind of demands that you just don't go in and make your way by questioning everything that had gone before you. But So for some reason, that memory leaps to mind when you ask that question. I think it really guided me um, in some important ways.
1: How old were you when you stepped into the national role for Vineyard?
0: 37. Okay. So I was pretty young, you know what I mean? For you would think that's a role, the head of a denomination, for somebody who's more like 57. Um, so, yeah, I was young, and I, I think that um, that you know, when you're anxious taking over a new role by that, like that, you you can grasp, and you know, grasping by definition, right, is anxious. And I had to find a way to pause like not to differentiate with reference to anybody else or anything else, but like my own vision, my own person. And now I hadn't read Friedman by then, but so this is, I'm looking back now and thinking about what was going on in me through sort of Friedman terms.
1: Yeah. And which particular Friedman are you talking failure of nerve there or generation Yes, to generation? I'm sorry.
0: I'm sorry. Failure of nerve. Yes. I, I don't know when that book came out. I don't remember exactly when I read it. Um, it's been a long time now, maybe 15 or 20 years or something. But that's the one book I always say I wish I would. I wish it would have been out and available when I started my first church when I was 23. And I think the anxiety that he talks about, it marked me to some degree. It, so I suppose, it still marks me. It was probably my number one leadership challenge. I mean, I've always quote succeeded at leadership or whatever I've done, but my internal world, man. When I read Friedman, I just thought that explains my internal world. Yeah, you know, it explains my slowness in making decisions it makes yeah, it helped me see the downside of what's an upside to me like I very much care about others in, in a very sincere, I think godly way. But in me, it can slip over to that sort of noticing too much other people's anxious processes. And then I inadvertently would get controlled by it.
1: Yeah. And so over time, how have you noticed when you're crossing that threshold?
0: I still wish I noticed it sooner. Um, I think I've no, I think I've come to notice that when I attach too much to somebody else's um, emotional processes, I think I've come to notice when it crosses the line from like genuine, godly, good empathy to something that's controlling me. Like when I notice that it's controlling me, my thoughts or my ability to make a decision my ability to differentiate in some way, then I think I notice it in a way that, oh, I I have to deal with this in myself.
1: Yeah. Todd, let's go back to the comment you made about um, stepping in after a founder and Mm -hmm. um, just the wisdom of not questioning old decisions. I I really like that. What what strikes me is I think one of the challenges for a leader is it's like we need a problem to fix so we can be okay. Mm Could you talk to us about what you see in leaders when we have to come in uh, and either fix something so we feel good? Like that would also be an anxious response, I think.
0: Yes. I don't know where this saying comes from, but I'm sure most of our uh, listeners will have heard it. Um, Maybe I feel like it comes out of politics, um, but maybe not. Maybe out of leadership theory. Uh, Never waste a good crisis. Right. And I think that's morphed over the last decade or two to people actually will create a crisis in order to make an organizational change they want to make. And that, like I get, I get, like on a totally pragmatic level, I get it. On the level of social psychology, I get it. But on the level of what we're talking about here on your podcast, what we're saying is we that anxiety sells. So create anxiety so that you can then do what you want to do. And at that just fills a staff, uh, an organization with anxiety. It, it means that, okay, this is now how we process hard things or difficult things. Uh, so if we want to build a new building, create anxiety around what happens if we don't build it, et cetera. And I, you know, we're, you know, we're having this conversation today in the middle of a political cycle and if you listen to debates or look at ads and stuff, you can just see that anxiety sells. It's fascinating. I was thinking when I was thinking and praying about us doing this this morning, it, all of a sudden I found myself fascinated with anxiety sells. I had never had that thought before. And then I thought, but we all hate anxiety. So how is it that we have this simultaneity of we hate anxiety and we use it to sell <laughs> to sell stuff? It's fascinating to me.
1: Well, and one of the questions I hate most when I go see a therapist is, um, you know, if I'm coming in with some particular problem, the therapist at some point will say, well, how is this problem benefiting you? Yes. And, you know, and I'll it, be like, yeah. of course it's not benefiting. Why do you think I'm here? <laughs> yeah. And they say, no, no, you're getting something yeah. out of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. That's a great question. Yeah.
1: So uh, the the other thing that comes to mind is there are certain, I think, leaders on some kind of narcissism scale Um uh, when not only are they creating the anxiety, but then they have to be the hero. Right. Have you seen that at work as well?
0: Yes, because you you create the anxiety, you create the crisis and then you to solve it, which the, the the subconscious or pre-conscious, maybe even conscious, but I, in in my experience, and just for context for our listeners, I've been overseeing pastors for more than 30 years, 30, 35 years. So I think most of this is pre-conscious, it's subconscious but yes, you get to then become the fixer. And so every, so it becomes a bit like an addiction. So you create a problem, you create a problem and the anxiety associated with it, you fix it, the anxiety goes down, then you become kind of known as the one who's who's the fixer. But I think we're paying a very high price for that, right? Like what that builds into the corporate culture of a staff or a board or a leadership team, it, it builds into it a, Oh, I'm picturing like a a clean glass of water where you put food coloring in it or something. And every time you do that, you put another drop of yellow or red or something. And before you know it, the cup's red. Like it's just full of anxiety and everybody processes everything in anxious sort of ways.
1: Yeah. And one of the things I'm mindful of is is in my leadership context, I'm the top of the food chain. Right. Uh, With a lot of your leadership, you were as well. Yes. Uh, a lot of my listeners um, are not, and they're working for somebody and they may be listening to this and thinking, oh man, like Todd has just mentioned my boss or my boss's boss. What would you say to somebody who's not in the position where they can shape the culture, but they are working for somebody who likes to blow things up and then be the hero? Uh, what, what would you say for them?
0: Well, I, again, I don't remember where I first heard the term managing up It Might have been like in 20 or so years ago from something Max, Don Maxwell wrote something. I I can't remember where I first heard the term. But um, I, I think managing up in the corporate world often refers to like getting things done. I think the term pops into my mind with reference to your question in a more relational way. Like how do I notice what's real? This is what I think is so hard. So I'm thinking here in sort of Ignatian terms. Like how do I bec- how do I become the sort of person who's actually present in my life? I notice what's real, like I genuinely notice my boss, I'm alert to those processes, but I'm able to differentiate from them. And so what I would say is you can only control what you can control. So you may not be able to control your boss, your boss and the the emotional processes that are created around him. But let's say if you're the youth leader, you're the children's leader, you're the worship leader, you can, in your sphere of influence, model something different. And I think often that's the best someone can do. Uh, Because uh, you might be able to do some gentle, wise teaching, but I think one has to be careful that that teaching doesn't get interpreted as implicit or direct criticism.
1: Well, (laughs) yeah, and especially if if someone is on more of a – NPD kind of scale; they're just going to use yeah. your words as as weapons, right? Yeah. Well, talk to us about Friedman and systems theory. What first you you kind of referred to what first struck you about it as the nature of your inner life, but is there a particular concept from it that that you find really helpful for faith leaders?
0: I do, and I've actually borrowed Friedman um, a lot. Uh, some of your listeners won't know that I was. Um, formerly the president of Alpha USA, the evangelism course. Uh, So I did that for nearly five years. And then I've spent a few years um, being a professor of evangelism. So I've, I have borrowed what I think of as essential freedom, fully differentiate, but stay connected as a non-anxious present. I think that's um, that explains evangelism today, that the church needs to fully differentiate that nothing's gained by you know, the notion that all religions are about the same. Um, no one believes that. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I get why people say it, but no self-respecting Muslim would say, oh, we're the same as everybody else. Right. No no Hindu would say, "We're." you know, every religion thinks that they're representing truth the best they can. So fully differentiate, but stay connected as a non-anxious presence. So I use that all the time as a paradigm for evangelism, but bringing it back to me. So I grew up in basically a decent home, but my father, when he was young, was something of an alcoholic, and he was very much a compulsive gambler. I mean, he literally ruined his life in every way that you can think of uh, as a compulsive gambler. Um, And so again, when I read Friedman, I realized, oh, I actually grew up in a home like what he's suggesting. And because I'd been a pastor my whole life, I knew enough. enough just to be dangerous. It's about family systems theory, uh, you know, just from sort of a pastoral counseling point of view, but I didn't understand it in the way I did after reading Friedman. To me, Friedman was deeply personal. I mean, it was intellectual. Like I learned some things that I'll never forget and that I use, but it was also deeply personal. His whole notion of You know, the reactivity that if mom's an alcoholic, to switch examples, you know, that most people either say, well, forget mom, I'm going to have nothing to do with her. So they don't stay connected or they stay connected, but they stay connected in a um, codependent way. And man, when I read that, I just looked back at my whole career, especially in my 20s as a church planner. And I just realized that it explained so much of my leadership dysfunction. And I was succeeding in every way. It wasn't like I was failing. But even people who are succeeding have personal failures and they have weaknesses. And I just realized that just for me personally, Friedman explained virtually all of my like native weaknesses. Right? Like every leader has a native weakness or two. Friedman just named mine, at least for me. He named something that I was aware of that I had not previously named. And I think because I hadn't named it, I couldn't see it as clearly and therefore I couldn't deal with it. And it was just immeasurably helpful. Easily the most helpful leadership book I've ever. Well, I read it as a leadership book. So I now think of it as a leadership book. I don't know how, I don't even know how he meant it. But for me, it was of all the books, the scores and scores of books I've read on leadership over the last 45 years. It, it's easily the, the most helpful to me.
1: Yeah. He actually did mean it as a leadership book. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, because he's a marriage and family therapist and a rabbi. Right. And mm-hmm. I think the genius of Friedman is he took systems theory off the therapy couch, put it in the congregation. Right. But he was based in D.C. and um, eventually, like, he's working with Colin Powell. And um, Oh, and, I didn't know that. Yeah. And Colin Powell mm-hmm. is saying, man, the military is like a family. You know, the privates mm-hmm. are complaining and all of this. Yeah. And uh, that's what Failure of Nerve came out of was his um, military and his corporate work. When
0: I didn't know, I knew about his corporate work. I didn't know about the military work.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So
0: to put a, a a finer point on that, I guess this isn't surprising. I I hope it's helpful. I don't, I think your listeners are pretty mature about this stuff, but I think that one big takeaway or, or an example of a big takeaway is I, I reviewed my career and realized that I had been very slow to make big decisions And I'm not really what you'd call intellectual or like, you know, I'm not like an engineer or a mathematician who like studies things closely in that sense, you know, and like has to understand every little data point before they make a decision. I think I got stuck in just like cycles of questioning myself and Friedman helped me understand that I actually wasn't questioning myself. I actually was pretty clear about what I thought was the right decision or the right. I couldn't get past the emotional processes of others to this day, when I talk to my executive coach or spiritual director or whatever, a lot of what it'll come back to is I am naturally a very empathetic person. And that has worked for me. Um, I mean, routinely, I say this with all due humility, but routinely people will say, oh, it's the best boss I've ever had, et cetera, et cetera. But that empathy, as I said, it can fall over into something that it's not true empathy. It's It's me reacting to others' emotional processes.
1: you, it it wasn't that long into leading Vineyard that you moved into Anglicanism. Could you talk us through that shift?
0: Yes, it was. um, It's not the sort of uh, sexy or, you know, emotionally, uh, um, yeah, sort of emotionally sexy stories one might think it would be. Um, I had finished being president of Alpha. I had finished my of ministry work. I had written my first book and kind of had a, I knew I had the opportunity to write as much as I wanted to write. Um, I was getting a lot of opportunities to speak and adjunct. And I think, frankly, Steve, I was just a little tired. You know, after 30 years of leading organizations, I was in my early 50s and thought, you know, I think I just want to speak and write and teach for a living. And um, one of my I met a lot of Anglican people during my tenure as president of Alpha. And in my early years with John Wimber... Had met you know most of the leading sort of evangelical charismatic Anglicans in England, so I knew a lot of Anglicans. And one of them got a hold of me and said, "Hey, I heard you're not doing anything. <laughs> <laughs> you know, why don't you come help me? You know, you're a church planner. Why don't you come help me plant a daughter church in Carlsbad, California? I'm from Southern California. I presently live in Franklin, Tennessee, but I'm." I'm and raised in California. And I said, no, God, no. I know what it takes to plant a church, and that's precisely what I don't want to do. Well, one thing led to another, and a couple of my alpha friends um, introduced me to the leader of the Anglican Mission in the Americas, and this would have been like 12 years ago. And make a long story short, I was basically kind of recruited in, you know, out of the blue. I I wasn't, I don't know how many of your listeners will know, um, on the Canterbury Trail, Bale, Robert Weber, I wasn't one of those you know, disgruntled evangelicals who was looking for a different way of doing church or something, it was totally an out of the blue calling. Now it made some sense to me because you know, as a young Christian in the Jesus movement in Southern California, of course I would read Packer and John Stott and C.S. Lewis and later in my life Tom Wright and people like that, and I think I've always had an inclination towards Anglican spirituality. It feels less pugilistic than American evangelicalism. Uh, it's, it's thoughtful. It's, um, I don't know. I just have been, I've always been drawn to the kind of evangelical charismatic English Anglicans that I've known. And so I just really, it was a surprising out of the blue calling. Um, I wrote a book about a friend of varsity called the accidental Anglican, which yes. gives, you a, gives you a sense of it.
1: Yeah. And are you connected to the Rwandan Anglican movement as well?
0: We were when I came in cause the Anglican mission in oh. the America's was now we're all still connected, you know, via friendship, uh, but not not um, technically organizationally connected anymore. There is now an American church, just like every other denomination. um, You know, there's uh, been a split between you know liberals and conservatives, and so in America. Typically, the the Episcopal Church would be named as liberals, and the Anglican Church in North America as the conservatives. So, everybody who had left the Episcopal Church, which wasn't me—I was never an Episcopalian—and went and um, associated with bishops in the Global South about six years ago. No, ten years ago. Sorry, Um, everybody. Well, I don't. Don't hold me to that number. But a number of years ago kind of everybody came back at, from those glo- global South um, bishops and formed the Anglican Church in North America. And that's um, I'm now a bishop in the Anglican Church in North America.
1: Yeah. And, Todd, my understanding is you also had quite a friendship
0: with Dallas Willard. Is that accurate? I did, yes. Um, if Friedman was the most important book, um, then, uh, Dallas was easily the most important mentor in my life. And so we worked together and, uh, I really, I think got to know him through serving on Richard Foster's, um, board. Um, and then Dallas and I worked a lot together. We taught conferences together and he was, he was just a very important, uh, mentor, personal mentor to me. Yes.
1: Yeah. I mean, he's obviously, I think for every good reason, a legend, what, yeah. what would be just one or two lessons or impressions that you come away with from Dallas? Mm-hmm.
0: I think if you ask any of us who knew him well, like if you ask me or John Orberg or Richard Foster or James Ryan Smith or Keith Matthews, anybody who was close to Dallas, we would all tell you that it was clear that he was always the smartest person in the room. And that's literally true. I'm not just like saying that to be nice. He was a towering intellect. Um, I don't know how many of your listeners will know that he was a philosopher by trade and um, was for a long time the uh, chair of the Department of Philosophy at USC in uh, Los Angeles. He was an expert on Edmund Husserl, which made him an expert on phenomenology. So, you know, he had this incredible mind. Um, so, we always knew he was like the smartest guy in the room by far. And had lots of other talents and abilities. But what every single one of us who are close to him will tell you, what stands out the most is his quality of being. That Whatever it is that he meant to teach about life in the kingdom, about driving your life from the kingdom of God and living your life in the kingdom of God, he was the most peaceful, grounded. Like if there would have been an icon of what Friedman was trying to produce, um, it might have been Dallas. I've never said that out loud before. I never had the thought before. In fact, talking to you, I realized I've never had this thought before. Hmm. I don't know how much Dallas would have engaged with Friedman or how, um, how well he might have known of him. I just don't know one way or the other. But Dallas embodied. So here's another thing. So I have lots of Willardisms that have stuck with me over the years, but one of them is you're always safe in the kingdom of God. Now, you could immediately see, Steve, how I put that together with Friedman being a non anxious presence. Yeah. Like it funded my imagination for being a non anxious presence. So that literally, this might help some of your young listeners. This is honest to God true. Like at, I go through my day, if there's something important coming up, a difficult conversation, if I have to let somebody go, if I have to give somebody a bad evaluation, you know, any difficult conversation. I will often just stop for the briefest moment of prayer before I pick up the phone or walk into the room and I'll just remind myself, I am always safe in the kingdom of God. Hmm. Like I don't have to secure myself in any way through this person, through this conversation. I don't have to control outcomes. I am always safe in the kingdom of God. So again, I've I've never said this out loud because I've never thought of it, but it almost feels like my life now, like my interior life, from which i lead like right think of jesus it's out of the abundance of the heart that we do what we do and say what we say that when i'm operating healthily i feel like i'm running on train tracks a sort of freedman stay connected as a fully differentiate stay connected as a non-anxious presence to the people and events of my life and the willard track of you're always safe in the kingdom of god and it feels like the willard track is what has funded in me an imagination and perhaps even sort of reshaped me a bit emotionally to allow me to live into what I think of as the freedman ideal. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it sure does. I like really I like I needed
0: it. an imagination for living into that freedman ideal. I could see the ideal, but I think Dallas gave me the imagination of you're always safe in the kingdom of God. You don't have to secure yourself. I think, that's, so, that's so liberating, right?
1: I think it really is. And, and actually, I think what you've also unintentionally stumbled upon is people's number one challenge with Friedman and Bowen and systems theory, which is how conceptual it is. And um, when I teach uh, systems theory, the number one challenge for people is trying to figure out what differentiation actually is. Mm. So for you to Mm -hmm. have an embodied example of it, that does make sense to me that you can look at somebody and say, that's what it looks like when it's working.
0: Yes, yeah.
1: I was struck, um, I don't remember where I heard it, it might have been John Ortberg, but someone talking about what it's like to speak at a conference with Dallas. And when you're all kind of hung up on how you did, uh, you know, do people like it? And and he just never was like he could give a bad message and be fine. Yes. And I remember hearing that as an early preacher and making that my goal to, um, to be <laughs> yeah. able to successfully preach poorly and be okay. And it <laughs> yeah. took a while, but I, I'm proud yeah. to say that I'm actually good at <laughs> preaching badly now.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, no, it's true. He was just unfazed. He would just say, well, you know, you, you do your very best to prepare and you do your very best to love your audience. And then he would say, but Todd... When it's he 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 had this at least with me he'd use this illustration of bowling and bowlers you know how bowlers stand back from the line and they kind of wiggle their rear ends and shift their feet and shift the ball in their hands and then they you know slide up to the line and let the ball go and Dallas would say so you do your best, Todd, in preparation, but once you've let the ball go, you just abandon outcomes to God. Mm. Like you just never know what the Holy Spirit's going to do with words that come from your mouth and so you're right if he was highly articulate highly articulate and feeling good that's that's fine but if he was maybe not in a highly articulate moment or lacking energy or something you know the kind of things that us public speakers notice he he would just be you're right he'd just be okay with it because well you know you never know what this spirit might do with my words (laughs) Yeah. yeah and it was unfeigned it was completely unfeigned that was what was so stunning about it Pastors wake up feeling depleted, defeated, and overwhelmed. We know this because we're pastors and we felt it. Which is why we created a podcast called The Monday Morning Pastor. It's a weekly podcast to encourage, equip, challenge, and resource pastors and kingdom leaders each Monday morning. We want to tell and hear stories of hope and encouragement in the midst of this unique place in culture where the negative ministry stories seem to get all the airtime. Our hope is that these stories resonate with and remind pastors why we stay in the game. It's a podcast that gives pastors hope and a safe place to be people who need to receive the good news on the day where we feel the most vulnerable. So we invite you to join us and listen to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast, where pastors can be people. You can find us on kairospartnerships.org, Missio Alliance, or anywhere podcasts are available.
1: Um, so we'll move, um, if you feel like you're able to brace yourself, we're going to move to our gauntlet of questions on anxiety. Right. The first question is, I have found it helpful, uh, for people to be able to name where anxiety begins in their body. I think it's deeper work to figure out what's driving it, but if you can just notice physiologically when you're anxious, I, I find that to be really helpful for people. So if you had to choose between a spinning mind, a racing heart and a tightening gut, where would anxiety first show up for you?
0: Tightening, uh, but not always my gut, uh, often my jaw. I've struggled with uh, TMJ sometimes. Um, and it doesn't always come from acute anxiety. Sometimes if I'm even just writing, like if I'm just concentrating deeply, like I've uh, I've written several books. And so sometimes when I'm writing, I, I used to have to even put one of those things in my, my mouth because I would just tense without even knowing it. So for me, I would say definitely tightening, but it would be in my life, it would be more jaws, neck, shoulders. Yeah,
1: more muscular. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. I think you've alluded to this in the interview, but oftentimes I find that leaders are the last to know that we are not okay. And sometimes Mm -hmm. we need the help of others. Um, Who in your life
0: knows that you're not okay before you know? Well, I I think, Thank God. I, I don't know who I owe the thanks to, to this, but could be Eugene Peterson could be Richard Foster. I'm not sure. But the beginning to see a spiritual director um, was really important to me. Um, and without over, I, my intention here is not to over spiritualize, but I I've had a habit now for a number of years of taking monthly retreat days. And then during that retreat day, I would see my spiritual director. And so, again, I, uh, I don't mean to over-spiritualize, but sometimes the silence, does that make sense? The yeah. silence knows who I am before I do. Mm. And, of course, it's not truly a silence because, I mean, it's a physical silence, but it's a spiritual aliveness. I mean, that's the whole point of silence and solitude is that they're pregnant with the life of God. You just have to quiet yourself in solitude to notice it. So I'd say, for me, it's a combination of spiritual directors and, um, I'm also a very open and teachable person for good and bad. So I, I constantly am asking people questions. I do have a, a coach, you know, an executive coach. So I'm, a. Um, like a thirsty person for reality. Uh, Henry Nowen, not Henry Nowen, Henry Cloud wrote a book not long ago, and I, I can't remember the title, but I think it might be reality. But one of the points that Henry makes in that book that's so important, I think, is that reality is always your friend, mm. it, no matter what reality is. So if you can notice it, name it, you can deal with it. But as soon as you lose touch with reality, that's, that's tough. Mm. So I would say one of the, this is a little different than what you're asking Steve. So sorry, sorry. But I think one of the best gifts of what you're talking about is it helps name reality.
1: Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Is that, I'm, I'm pulling this out of the air. Is that Max Dupree? I think that's his definition of a leader is someone who names reality.
0: Yeah. No, it's a slightly different. Yeah. Dupree says the first job of leadership is to to define meaning or, you know, name reality. And the last job is to say, thank you there. That's a total Dupreeism. No, Henry wrote a whole book on it. I just can't think of the title right now. I'm Mm. sorry.
1: No, very good. Um, Another thing I think systems theory helps us with is generational traits. We do genograms and we study what scripture talks about, you know, how the sins of the father are handed down to the third and fourth generation. Um, You've you've inferred a little bit about growing up, but could you just give us one family trait that's been handed down to you that is helpful to you as a leader, and then one that is also a threat to your well-being?
0: I think they're probably the same thing. I think in reaction to my father and in a mimicking of my mother, who are both dead now... I am a highly responsible person. Mm, now you okay. just never have to worry about me taking responsibility. Yeah, but I am also easily overly responsible.
1: You're an overfunctioner.
0: And a, yes, and a, yes, overly really responsible. And again, you can see how that can pollute my native empathy. Like it's one thing to have empathy. It's another thing to be overly responsible and to get caught up in others' emotional processes. And I, that's been super hard for me to tease that out over now, you know, 45 years of ministry.
1: Uh, I just think listening to, you know, your whole interview, I, th- I think what people are really going to come away with uh, as your profound idea is, is learning how to notice when your empathy becomes toxic. That's, you've, you've circled around that idea so many times, and I think so many leaders can relate to that.
0: Well, especially pastoral leaders, right? Yeah. Or counselors or chaplains, you know, anybody in the people helping business. You know, we get into it because we care about others. Right. But it can take a long time to figure out how care is supposed to work. Like, what does that word mean? And how's it supposed to work? And when's it functional and dysfunctional for me, for the recipient of my care? Yeah, it's really tricky business.
1: Well, and especially when we put the Bible in it and we talk about loving your Mm -hmm. neighbor and we get all confused about taking care of ourselves. And yeah, oh, that's good. I think the other gift of systems theory is it helps us notice anxiety in a group, not just in ourselves. Um, Just give us an example of where you've seen anxiety be contagious in a group setting.
0: Oh, I think, I think of staffs, but give me a moment to think of a particular uh, incident, but I certainly have seen the, you know, I've led staffs my whole life, and certainly anxiety can become a part of a staff. So let's see, um, maybe somebody did something really bad, you know, the kind of things ministers do that you you kind of have to get fired for. That certainly can inject a lot of anxiety in a group. Maybe somebody got a bad review because they just weren't doing a good job and it, you know, puts anxiety in the group of, oh my God, is, you know, (laughs) like, is Todd going to start judging us all harshly? Um, yeah, I, I, that's what I think of as I think of a trigger, whatever that trigger might be, then producing the kind of conversational anxiety, you know, sort of what I call water cooler anxiety, uh, going out to lunch anxiety where people start speculating, um, so you have a history that then causes that sort of conversational anxiety that comes from trying to predict the future based on this incident that just happened. That's Maybe that's the most common pattern I've seen. Yeah,
1: that's good, yeah. Uh, some, some of my work is actually uh, working on a theology of anxiety. I just haven't seen... Mm, that's many, interesting. Yeah, I haven't seen many people take... Particularly Paul's teaching in the New Testament... Mm-hmm. And so I, I confess I am playing with the Word of God. But when John says that perfect love casts out all fear, mm-hmm. I find it helpful to just to, to say perfect love casts out all chronic anxiety. Like mm-hmm. when you're in the grip of chronic anxiety, it's very difficult to be aware of God's presence. Yes.
0: Um,
1: so to that end, uh, I find it helpful to figure out when you feel most fully loved in your life. So in your life, Todd, when do you feel most fully loved?
0: Uh, this, I don't know how great or healthy of, a, of an answer this is, but it'll be honest <laughs> um, um, when I've made a positive difference in a person or an organization. And for me, that usually means when an idea, a concept, a vision or something has been appreciated because it may a difference or produces hope or something. So, maybe putting it differently when I've been taken serious about an important idea. And that idea had um, fruit or was effective. Those are probably the moments I feel sort of the most loved or best about myself. Uh, That's great. Great. I don't know how healthy that is, but it's honest. (laughs) Oh, I like it. It's
1: a wonderful answer. Yeah. Uh, Todd, thank you so much for coming on the show. I know you're also about to launch your own podcast. Is that available yeah. to anybody or is that just for the diocese? It'll It'll
0: come out in a few weeks. It will be available to anybody, but it's uh, it'll really be aimed primarily at the almost 200 clergy that I oversee. Um, but certainly any anybody will be able to have access to it, yeah. So Great. we're just in the design phase, and uh, the first one might drop in a month or so. Yeah, great. We look forward to it. Thank you. Thanks for saying that. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, no, thanks for coming on the show. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org.